Let's generate our motivation now. And so it's on account of some virtuous actions that we did in previous lives that we have the fortune to be here today and be able to listen to teachings. And the vision of this life is very strong. It's very easy for us to get pulled here and there and I have some other more important things to do or you know, my little toe hurts or whatever it is. And so we don't make it to the teachings. And that's a big loss for us from when that happens. So for all the people here today, be thankful to whoever you were in a previous life that created the causes for you to be here. And then continue to act with a virtuous motivation, creating more causes, so in the future you'll be able to encounter the Dharma and be able to listen to teachings. And let's remember when we listen to teachings to have a really big mind and the vastness of that bodhicitta mind, hopefully that would draw us to the teachings, to the meditation hall. Because we're really intent on attaining awakening for all beings. And we see that going to the hall, going to teachings, having a good motivation when we're washing the dishes, we see that all of these things are ways to accomplish our, our long-term goal for the benefit of all beings. And so then we approach everything we do in our lives with joy. And that's why they call it joyous effort. Because we're eager to transcend the impediments of the self-centered mind. We're eager to act in ways that directly and indirectly benefit others. And see, by the change of that attitude in our mind, then we can also see the change in our actions of body and speech. And we also see the change in our emotional state because we feel much more joyful when there's a virtuous aspiration in our mind. So let's take a moment, cultivate that attitude, and then share the Dharma together this evening.
Uh, so there were some questions from last week. I thought I'll start with them and then uh, go into what we're doing this week. Um, so one person was asking uh, about merit and good karma. And, you know, I've never seen a definition of merit anywhere. Uh, and I've checked with some of my friends, too, and nobody's ever seen one in any of the books. But it sounds like it means virtuous karma. And so in the two accumulations, or the two collections, collection of merit, you know, which leads to primarily to the Buddhist form body, collection of wisdom, which leads primarily to the Buddhist uh, truth body. So what was your question about this? Yeah. Well, you know, if I've never seen a definition, then I can't tell you exactly what it is. It seems to me that merit is referring to the action itself, not to the seeds. Yeah, because it sounds like, well, we're collecting merit, so here's all these seeds, you know. Like, who cares about the action? We just want the seeds. Yeah, but we it shouldn't be who cares about the action, just give me the seeds of the actions. It's the actions that are important. It's the actions that are meritorious. It's the actions that are beneficial. Okay, the seeds just carry that potential so that it can ripen later on. Okay, but it's the doing of the action, the actual karma, that's the important thing. Okay. Yeah, you look like you're seeing elephants or something. <laughs> um, so, uh, so as we know, karma can be physical, it can be verbal, it can be mental. Okay, and uh, all and the different schools define karma slightly differently. You know, in terms. Uh, but everybody says that karma is the mental factor of intention. But it's not only the mental factor of intention because it's whatever other mental factors are with it that make it a virtuous intention, a non-virtuous intention, or a neutral one. Okay, so the mental factor of intention may be the karma, but what kind of karma you create depends on other mental factors in your mind, okay? And then they leave the seeds on the mind stream. And, uh, you know, as Shanti Deva says in, um, in chapter six of Bodhicharya Vatara, if we get angry, we can jeopardize those seeds, you know, the seeds of the merit, we can, uh, you know, impede them from ripening. Okay, so it's very, how we use the terms is not always clear because karma, you know, uh, is really the action, but often we talk about karma, we use karma to mean the seed, and often we use the word karma to mean the result of the action. So it's very sloppy in everyday language 
how we use the word karma, but it technically means the action itself. Okay? Now, Alex at one time used used positive potential instead of merit. The idea being that uh, they're emphasizing it's the seeds on the mind stream that have the potential. But then I don't know why he decided to stop using that. And so everybody uses merit even though nobody thinks it's a good translation. Okay? Because it implies getting little gold stickers on your spelling tests in third grade, which is not what we're trying to do. Okay? Then somebody else asked about the uh, requesting inspiration, which we'll be getting to in a moment, but I'll, I'll just talk a little bit about it now so that I don't forget the person's question. Um, actually, as we go into the, if you've read ahead, which I hope you have, um, you know, there is a verse in there that is from the Giorgio Puja, um, where it's interesting because in the context of the Georgia Buddha, this uh, verse of requesting inspiration is done uh, when you offer the mandala. Okay, so, so you can offer the mandala and request inspiration at the same time. Many of the verses, the standard prayers we have for offering, for requesting inspiration, uh, contain, uh, they can be very long and they have all the names of different lineage lamas, starting from the Buddha and then different Indian ones and Tibetan ones and, and down to our, our own root guru. Uh, and uh, I've always wondered, I think that most of those may have been written by the Tibetans. You know, or they have them in Chinese Mahayana also. Maybe they were written in China. I don't know in in India itself. I'm sure people were aware of their lineages, but I don't know if they wrote a verse to each of their teachers and so on. Um, surely they praise their teachers. You know, that definitely. But... Uh, and many of the people wrote verses to their teachers. Tsongkhapa, for example, you know, was a great poet as well, and so he made, wrote many uh, verses of, of prayers and homage to some of his close teachers. Uh, but this whole thing of writing, uh, you know, several pages of, of uh, verses with the names of the lamas, I don't know exactly when that started. It would be interesting to, to find out. The idea behind it is that it gives you a feeling of uh, belonging and a feeling of knowing uh, kind of where you're at, who you're following, who your ancestors are, and so on. So it's like in a blood lineage. Yeah, many people, genealogy is a big thing now, and people want to know their ancestors and what their ancestors did and what their names were and 
so on and so forth. And I read that somebody did a study and that children who grow up hearing about their family's history uh, have more stability, you know, in life in that they, they feel, okay, you know, I come from this family and here were these people and, you know, there's more of a feeling of belonging somewhere in this universe, you know. Whereas if you don't know your family history, uh, then it, it, it can lead to feeling rather like this. I think that's something in the African-American community that is, can be difficult for people because um, they don't know the family history, especially once you get to Africa, the names of the people or who, where they lived even or whatever, where they came over. And just to get the names of the last few generations or the generations before the Civil War, you have to look in the um, accounts of property held by plantation holders because their ancestors were considered property. And you'll find the names in there and how much they bought them for and how much they sold them for. So, uh, you know, something about the history gives you a, a, you know, kind of, yeah, that feeling, I guess. I don't know, I can't speak to it so well because I only know the, basically as far as my grandparents, I know the name of one great-grandparent, and that's it. I don't know anything about any of, you know, their lives, the other three uh, great-grandparents, and who who knows who came before them, you know? So I don't know, I think, but I think it's different if you grow grow up, uh, you know, in a certain place with a culture and your ancestors have been there for, a long time. So anyway, I think that this whole idea of saying the names of um, the lineage uh, works in that way to to give people a, a sense of, yeah, where they belong, where they come from, where they're going, something like that. I don't know. Okay. Um, yeah. <coughs> Personally, what I find very interesting is in the Lamrim Chenma, uh, Tsongkhapa doesn't give a whole long prayer with the names for the requesting of inspiration. He gives this verse where we're, um, you know, actually stating the realizations that we want the inspiration to generate in us. Yeah, so it's quite different than in, in other practices. Okay, then there's a bunch of questions here. Okay. So in terms of trying to create causes and or conditions for people to do, say, or think something that you believe would create merit for them or help them in some way, what's the difference between using skillful means and being manipulative? <laughs> I think a lot depends on your mind, okay? If, 
the main thing is my agenda and what I want these people to do because I think this would be good for them and what they should do. You know, when that's in my mind, uh, then, yeah, uh, I could say things directly to them or I could also, you know, do manipulative things. Uh, in the same way, you can really, you know, if you're trying to guide somebody and you think something would really benefit them, you could tell them directly about it to do this or that. That's the easy way. But in the case of that one young man in Singapore who had cancer, the only way I got him to create some merit uh, by animal liberation was to ask him to take me to do it. Okay, but I think the chief thing is uh, what our motivation is. Okay, so we have to be careful of this one of, you know, I know what's best for you. Now, of course, you know, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas do know what's best for us, but they don't say it in that tone of voice. <laughs> Okay, because their motivation isn't their agenda for us to do. Their motivation is to benefit us. So the manipulation comes in when the, um, there's corruption in the motivation. Okay. And sometimes we don't realize our motivation is corrupt until we're trying so hard to get somebody to do something and it's like banging our heads on the wall because they're not doing it and then we get angry at them okay when we get angry at them that is a flashing red light that something in our motivation wasn't kosher okay So in the Blue Prayer book, it, it talks about all beings, my kind mother, have fallen like me into the ocean of cyclic existence. So how did we fall? Where did we fall from? And what does that mean? Okay. Fallen like me into the ocean of cyclic existence. That is all of us. All of us are in the ocean of cyclic existence. It's not that one time we were in the Garden of Eden and then, you know, that whole thing with the apple happened. Okay. So it's not like one time we were pure and then, you know, we fell in that way. So don't put the Christian thing onto it. Fallen into cyclic existence means that we're creating uh, the causes for cyclic existence. You know, we're creating polluted karma. And especially when we create non-virtuous karma, yeah, then we fall from a good rebirth into a lower, lower rebirth. Okay, so we say in general that we've fallen in cyclic existence, just meaning we're in cyclic existence, but we can fall from an upper rebirth to a lower rebirth. And it doesn't take too much to do that. Yeah, so we have to be really careful about um, what we think and plan and say and do. 
um, because we're the ones who create the causes for, you know, our future rebirths. Okay. Um, what does the word holy mean in Buddhism? And what is a holy being? That's another one. I haven't seen a definition of the word holy. Okay. Um, certainly it means good. It means virtuous. Um, when we talk about holy beings, I know for myself I'm talking about either bodhisattvas or, um, or aryas. Okay? Some, some bodhisattvas are aryas, some aren't, but I include all the bodhisattvas as holy beings. In terms of the shravakas and solitary realizers, I think of them as holy beings uh, when, you know, when they have attained stream entry, when they have become aryas. But that's just my own mind and how I do it. I, like I said, I haven't seen a, uh, an Oxford Dictionary <laughs> definition of holy in terms of Buddhism. Okay. Okay, and then in uh, the mandala offering in the blue book, it talk, you know, we offer objects of attachment, aversion, and ignorance. So uh, what is an object of ignorance? And I should also ask, why in the world do we offer objects of aversion to the Buddha? You know, shouldn't we be offering pleasant things to the Buddha? Yeah, I mean, every session, do you want to offer Trump to the Buddha, you know? Or you want to offer the person who, who abused you or whatever it is like that? You know, why should we offer these people to the Buddha? Yeah. What, what we're doing by offering, um, you know, objects or people of attachment, aversion, and ignorance is we are, mm, by giving them to the Buddha, they no longer belong to us. And so our right to uh, have so many opinions and so many emotions about them ha goes down because they don't belong to us. Okay, it's like if I have a strawberry cheesecake and I give it to Venerable Tarpa, is it so good for me to sit there and like stare at it with attachment? You know, it belongs to her now. Yeah, and you know, it's not very polite. It's not very good, is it? Even just even you haven't given the strawberry cheesecake to somebody, even they went out and bought it to stare at somebody else's, you know, delicious thing that's the object of your craving, okay? So it's very helpful for our mind in the sense that we think in the mandala offering, I've given this away. So in terms of objects of attachment, I've given them away. And for people, very helpful. We need to give away the people we're attached to and think that they're no longer ours, they're no longer mine. Because remember when we 
did the little exercise of, you know, putting the word my in front of another person or in front of another object and how much our whole attitude towards someone or something changes as soon as we call it mine. Yeah. So by giving it to the Buddha, we're taking the mine off of it. And so then, you know, our disturbing emotions about that attachment to a person dwindle. Okay. Yeah. When I offer those objects of ignorance and all that, for me, what it means is that I'm willing to look at it and work with it. Mm-hmm. So exactly. this is what it means for me when I give it. Right. So I'm being honest. I have this issue, and I really want to work on it. Yeah, yeah. You're offering it to the Buddha as in a way of saying, uh, Buddha, please help me to work on it. Please inspire my mind so that I can let go of my attachment, aversion, and ignorance concerning these different people and different objects. Okay? So, you know, objects of ignorance, it could be anyone and anything, you know, people that we just kind of tune out and we hardly even recognize that they're human beings with feelings. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're, they're objects of ignorance. You know, you read in the paper, uh, oh, like 176 people got killed uh, on this airplane crash in Iran when... Iran accidentally shot down one of their, they shot down a commercial flight that was leaving from Tehran airport and 176 people were killed. You know, do you feel badly for those 176 people? Do you think about them? Maybe there's one second of, oh, wow, that's really too bad. And then, uh, okay, what's for lunch? No. So they they kind of, for a minute, go into our awareness and then go back into objects of, of ignorance. Like that. Okay. Um, objects of aversion, I think we know very well. Yeah. And uh, I think with objects of attachment, you know, especially people that you're attached to, very helpful to offer them to the Buddha because aren't they or wouldn't they be better off under the guidance of the Buddha than under the guidance of your clinging and craving and attachment? You know, if you really care about somebody, who's going to benefit that person the most? You or the Buddha? Okay. Now you can say, well, I'll be like Sam, <laughs> you know, and invoke my story of how Sam is, is uh, kinder than the Buddha. But that's not the point. Okay. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. So the people we're attached to, really, does our clinging help them? Does our clinging and our worry and our anxiety and our pressure on them to be a certain way and think a certain way and do things for us, and does all of that benefit them? Yeah? So uh, when we really think about it, it's really much better that the Buddha takes care of them and that we, you know, don't impose our attachment on their lives. Yeah? Have you had bad experiences when people have been very attached to you? Um, What has happened? Yeah? Anybody here had parents that worried like mad? (laughs) Yeah, what does that do to you? To be, you know, they think that it's an indication of their love, but what does it mean to you to be an object of somebody else's worry? It's confining, isn't it? So let's not put that on other people. They belong to the Buddha. And the Buddha's not going to worry about them. The Buddha's going to teach them how to create virtue so that they'll have happiness, which is much more useful than our worrying about them experiencing suffering when and having no ability to stop their suffering, you know, except by yelling and screaming at them. Okay, people uh, that are who are objects that are uh, objects of aversion, we're not giving them to the Buddha just to get rid of them. (laughs) Yeah, there was this cartoon of of Trump holding the the um, the Capitol building, you know, where the Congress meets, and saying, "I tried to include this." with the the trade deal to China, but they didn't want it. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, it's not like, okay, these people who we can't stand, give them to the Buddha, get them out of my hair, you know? Here, Buddha, you take them. Okay. Yeah, he wanted to send them to China. (laughs) Anyway, um, it's not that. It's, It's, again, you know, kind of like what you said, we're offering these people to the Buddha, you know, because in our heart we want to change our relationship with them and we're, you know, asking for the Buddha's inspiration to be able to do that. And then objects of ignorance, everything we tune out on, you know, to, uh, you know, again, can all those beings. Uh, and when you read about different, you know, ISIS soldiers getting killed, do you go, yay, they got killed? Or do you think, may they have a good rebirth? Or do you say, who cares? 
Yeah. So, uh, you know, instead of just kind of tuning them out or having a bad attitude, you know, at least mentally wish, wishing them well in, in future lives, even though, you know, looking at the karma from this life, whoo, it's going to be difficult. But, you know, we certainly, you know, don't want to hold grudges against people. Okay, so let's uh, go back to page 147. So requesting inspiration increases our connection to the lineage of practitioners who have preceded us and who have done what we aspire to do. It also invigorates our confidence and enthusiasm to practice the Dharma. While reciting the supplication for the three great purposes, which is the verse that follows here, from the Georgia Puja. So while reciting it, visualize light and nectar flowing from the lineage teachers into you and all the sentient beings around you. So the verse reads, please inspire me and all mother sentient beings to quickly abandon all flawed states of mind, beginning with not respecting our spiritual mentors up to grasping the true existence of persons and phenomena. Please inspire us to easily gener generate all flawless states of mind, beginning with respecting our spiritual mentors, up to knowing the reality of selflessness. Please inspire us to quell all inner and outer hindrances. Okay, so... When it's talking about flawed states from respect, not respecting our spiritual mentor up to grasping inherent existence, it's talking about the entire Lamrim. Because what's the first meditation? Yeah, relying on a spiritual mentor. What's the last thing in the Lamrim? You know, how to meditate uh, and realize emptiness. So that's essentially what we're asking for, is the Buddha's blessings or inspiration to clear away these um, flawed states of mind, these misconceptions in our mind. Okay. Yeah. So it has, you know, it's from A to Z, all of them. Now, the word inspire... That's uh, another translation for the word jinlab in Tibetan. Jinlab is often translated as bless. Okay. Now, as you know, many of you know, I'm not real hot on Christian term terminology using that for Buddhism because I think it brings a lot of misconceptions with it. Yeah. And so for me, the word bless, you know, it's like that one I want a definition of. You know, what does it mean to bless? Now, I know the meaning of jinlab in Tibetan. And it's not, it doesn't fit my connotation of the word bless. Yeah, what's your connotation to the word bless? To me, bless and blessings seems like magic. Yeah. 
source of goodness. Yeah. Yeah, something, getting something from an external source of goodness in a very magi magical way without you having to do anything. Yeah. Okay. And so that, that kind of idea doesn't really fit in Buddhism. Okay. Now, some people, you know, from your previous... Uh, you know, your religion of origin may like the word bless, um, but, you know, just kind of check out what it means to you. Now, the word jinla, the Tibetan word, uh, as Jeffrey explains it, means to transform into magnificence. So what you're... And this is, you know, kind of English, too, that seems... Funny, you know, tr please transform my mind into magnificence. You know, what's magnificence? And are you asking somebody external to transform your mind and so on? Um, but when they talk about transform my mind, what that means is, or, or jinlap, the whole, this whole process of requesting, you know, which is what you're requesting a jinlap. Um, it's explained as a, a something that the Buddha contributes to and you contribute to. Okay, I think we explain it. I think if we keep reading, it, it explains it a little bit more. But it isn't just Buddha, please... Uh, bless me like magic and then tomorrow morning uh, I'll wake up or even this same meditation session I'll all of a sudden have these realizations it's not like that it's I think it's like a psychological mechanism because we are so outwardly directed that we request the Buddha please inspire my mind yeah, or please bless my mind. But inside, because we studied the Dharma, we know this means I have to purify and accumulate merit, and I have to study and contemplate and meditate. Yeah. In other words, we say when we say, you know, please inspire my mind or please transform my mind into magnificence. It's, well, I have to do something to contribute to this process, okay? But because we, as sentient beings, are so externally oriented, you know, we just kind of put out there what we want to the Buddha. But then, of course, at the end of the whole sadhana, the Buddha dissolves back into us. So what we've projected outward, the Buddha as a holy being, created merit, purified, done all these things, and then he dissolves back into us. There's great meaning in that. Okay, yeah. And it, it means that it's, it has to do with our mind, not the Buddha as some inherently existent other person who has the power to uh, snap his fingers and remove our suffering 
and transport us to the pure land or, you know, or make our mind nirvana right away, okay? So, um, I, te I tend to use the word inspire instead of bless because for me, if I ask the Buddha to inspire my mind, it's like, if I feel inspired, then I do my part. Yeah? If I'm waiting for a blessing, I don't do anything. <laughs> and since the path depends on us and what's going on in our mind, yeah, it's more helpful to think I'm receiving the Buddha's inspiration so that I can do what I need to do to develop the qualities and realizations that I want to have. I, I looked up the word blesses a lot to it, but I think one of the things that might apply here is this place is a blessing to me. Mm. I came to it. It is here. I didn't make it happen, except like you say, maybe some causes and conditions, but it's extraordinary. And, it, and in that sense, I think we could uh, use the word blessed. But what makes this place blessed is what the people in it are doing. Oh, uh, trees are here and water's here, and so many things were, were endowed here uh, in this whole continent at one time. Mm -hmm. And if we would have held, uh, anyway, that's one other way of looking at this. What I also like about this um, supplication for the three great purposes, oh, so that you might wonder what are the three great purposes? Yeah. Uh, eliminating the flawed states of mind, gaining the um, the flawless states of mind, and quelling the inner and outer hindrances. So those are the, the three things that we're requesting. So let's talk a little bit about inner and outer hindrances too. Okay, so inner hindrances are uh, things that have to do with us and our body and mind. So it could be, you know, having a body that gets sick very easily, having a mind that is not emotionally stable, um, having a lot of, of one or another uh, defilement in the mind or affliction in the mind, or being very cloudy-minded, or, um, you know, these kinds of things for us, there's a hindrance in terms of our body and mind being really fit and able to, for the Dharma practice, okay? The external hindrances are, you know, this, so the internal one is maybe our predisposition to get sick. The external hindrance is being around a lot of people who, you know, don't have good sanitation and transmit their their diseases to you, you know? <laughs> or being in a car accident, being in a, in a, nat uh, a natural disaster, you know, the fires in Australia, uh, we would say would be an external hindrance to Dharma practice. 
Yeah. So these kinds of things, things coming from outside, living in a war zone, having government policies uh, that that uh, oppress you, or living in a society where you're part of a minority that is being oppressed, something like that. So those are kind of external hindrances. Yeah. So we all have hindrances. Yeah. Uh, samsara is the um, the palace of hindrances. <laughs> okay, anything you want, any hindrance you want, you can get in samsara. It's all there, and it all comes. Okay, so this is why the thought training practice or mind training practice is so important. Um, because we have to learn how to transform adversity into the path. Yeah, because these hindrances are going to come. Yeah, they're here right now, aren't they? Don't you have some hindrance? Yeah, I mean, why aren't you realizing emptiness and generating, you know, bodhicitta every meditation session? There's some hindrance, isn't there? Yeah, probably not just one, probably a few hindrances in there, yeah. And so we have to work to eliminate our hindrances and to create the causes, you know, for the, uh, uh, for the blessings to shower. Now for the inspiration to well up within us to uh, to practice and develop the, the uh, qualities you know, that we want. Okay. So, but this the whole this thought training practice of transforming adversity into the path is really crucial. I I highly recommend it to everybody. Yeah. So people ask, if people, if Buddhas help sentient beings impartially and their awakening activities are spontaneous, why do we need to request inspiration? I.e., shouldn't the Buddha be giving us inspiration already with us out having to ask for it? You know, it's like going to a place where they're giving out free chocolate. You know, why do you have to ask for it if they're giving it out free? <laughs> this question is. Receiving the inspiration of the Buddhas is a dependent process that relies on their ability to help as well as our receptivity. Our turning to them for refuge and making sincere requests opens our mind to receive their awakening influence. A large shady tree naturally has the ability to protect us from the sun, but we have to go and stand under it. Okay? Receiving inspiration and the Buddha's awakening influence depends on the combination of the tree of their compassion and our sitting under it. Okay? Now, I remember asking about this thing about blessings to His Holiness in the, in the course of writing this book. And 
Um, and he said, you know, because I was kind of wondering, is it, do holy beings really, can they, do really, do they have awakening influence? Can they really affect us? affect us or is this all uh, the placebo effect that's basically what I was saying you know but I didn't say it like that to his holiness anyway he um, you know in his explanation the way he explained it it was like no there is something that from the Buddha's some way that the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas can influence us. There is something external. Because he said, he gave this example, he said, if you, <laughs> if you requested blessings or inspiration from FDR, could he give you any? Yeah. And that, that was perfect for me. It's like, yeah, what's some president going to do for me spiritually? Even a good one like FDR, you know? It's like, so he said, you know, no, the Buddhas are not like that, you know? Kind of, what are you going to get from, what can FDR do for you? Well, what there's something you know the Buddhas can do for you to inspire you, okay? And so I think too, you know, when we uh, make prayers and aspirations, there something coming from us that definitely just the process of making them changes our mind. But there again is some interactive process, okay? Uh, that maybe we can't see so well. It's not like, wow, I just got a blessing, you know. <laughs> it's not like that. But, you know, there's sometimes maybe you're listening to teachings or sometime in your meditation, something just clicks for you. Yeah, so I think that's the, you know, receiving inspiration yeah transforming our mind into magnificence drop by drop by drop okay mm. this is also reminding me of a, another part of your question that I forgot yeah okay and it fits in here you know kind of what's coming from outside and what's part of our mind. So another question she had asked was, you know, uh, there are different um, things. I'm just going off on a tangent now. Um, there are different things in the long rim that make a certain, you know, that make karma heavier. You know, like the person who's doing the action, the object of our action, our motivation, the repetitiveness, the frequency of doing the action, um, you know, these kinds of things. And she said, uh, 
why then uh, do we talk about merit multiplying days? Those weren't mentioned in the scriptures as uh, things that make karma heavier. Okay. So that was another one of my questions that I've asked my teachers. Okay. Yeah. I asked one of my teachers, um, yeah, exactly that, about merit multiplying days. And I gave him the, the example of Vesak, you know, the Buddhist Enlightenment Day. Because in the Chinese calendar, it's one day. In the Tibetan calendar, it's the next day. And I think in the Theravada calendar, it's the third day. And the traditions, you know, uh, can't agree. Some people, even in the Tibetan tradition, say the Buddha was born on the eighth of the fourth month. And some people say, no, he was born on the 15th of the fourth month. And, you know, so getting these days that are the, the merit multiplying days, you know, getting them straight across the board is a little bit difficult because everybody has different ones. Okay, so are there really such things as merit multiplying days? Venerable Chunni doesn't want to hear about this. <laughs> She'll have to rewrite all of her emails to people. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, my, my teacher said, this one particular teacher, he said, no, it has to be on that particular day. Because I said, you know, what makes that day special? Why not the day before? Why not the day after? Why not the day according to somebody else's calendar? And he was really, you know, it has to be on that day. But then it doesn't make any sense if, you know, everybody says it's a different day. Okay, so my thought, okay, I have two thoughts, is one thing, um, it could be because they say anything to do with holy beings, like seeing a Buddhist statue or making an offering to a bodhisattva, or even they say even looking at a bodhisattva with anger, you know, that any of that makes a connection between you and the holy being and creates merit in the mind. So maybe doing something virtuous on one of those four special days has to do with doing something in connection with the holy being. Maybe. Maybe, my opinion, <laughs> okay, is that it makes people feel good to give it on a merit, merit multiplying day. It's like, why do you give to presents to people on Christmas? Why don't you give it to them, you know, on April, you know, 27th or, you know, June 15th or, you know, why do you wait until Christmas? Because you feel better doing it. And maybe, you know, because everybody's giving presents and maybe you think a little bit of the religious reason for it. Um... But hardly anybody thinks of the religious reason when they're going shopping. Yeah, I mean, the religious reason you would turn to 
God and Jesus, but you're not. You're buying chocolate for the people you like. Um, yeah, so I think people feel good, and I think it, uh, it energizes people to give, you know, because, oh, my merit will be multiplied, so that's good. So then I can give a little, and it, you know, it's like, you know, getting a special CD with 15% interest on it when you usually get 1%. <laughs> yeah, maybe something like that. I don't know. But, okay, having said that and thoroughly uh, made you all skeptical <laughs> and taken all the joy out of... <laughs> Because we have a merit multiplying day coming up in, in February. Okay. Yeah, there's only four of these big ones. Actually, we included Sonkapa too as the fifth. But not, not everybody does, says Sonkapa is, is like that. So anyway, yeah, so, uh, and then what about people from other religions or people from other traditions? Do they... You know, the, it makes it sound like anybody who does any virtuous activity on that day, whether they know about Buddhist holidays or not, accumulates merit. That would be wonderful. I mean, I'm all for it. I, I just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. You know, these are the kind of things they don't, you know, the kind of questions Westerners ask that Tibetans don't know how to answer because <laughs> Tibetans don't ask them, you know? They, they just believe, you know? Um, but I know myself that, you know, because it's happened that sometimes, like close to a merit multiplying day, I've wanted to give something and then the thought comes of, no, I should wait until the multiplying day and give it then. And then the other thought comes, but the long rim says that the, the time of death is, is uncertain, so it's better you give now, you know. So what, what, is, what should be more important, that I pay attention to the Buddha's teachings in the long rim or that I pay attention to my my greedy merit mind or i yeah my merit greedy mind you know which is no it's more important that i pay attention to the long rim isn't it and that i give when i feel motivated to give uh, you know not just kind of planning to to do it all on the merit multiplying days but it does inspire people and then people feel happy they feel good we should feel happy and good any time we make a, a donation, any time we do something virtuous, not just on merit multiplying days. Okay. Okay. But remember, this is my opinion, so it, don't take it as the truth. It's just my opinion. And feel free to ask other teachers and if you come up with a more reasonable answer, please tell me, too, because I want to learn about these things as well. Yeah. Okay.
Now imagine, so you, you've uh, requested, you know, the holy beings for their inspiration. Now imagine that all the figures in the merit field dissolve into the central figure of Shakyamuni Buddha, who then comes on top of your head, facing the same direction as you. So if you've been doing the Georgia Puja or the Lama Chopa Puja, the merit field's been out front. Yeah, and, you know, depending on how you do just the Shakyamuni Buddha practice that you're doing, Buddha can start out out front, he can start out on top of your head, it doesn't really matter. Okay, anyway, now if he was in front, he comes on top of your head, facing the same way as you do forward. And you imagine light flowing from the Buddha into you. Okay, and this light purifies all negativities and fills you with all the blessings, inspiration, and understanding of the Buddha. Feel the Buddha's compassion for you and his willingness to guide you to awakening. As you meditate like this, recite the Buddha's name mantra, Om Muni Muni Mahamuni Soha, as much as possible. Okay. Now, you might say, well, what about this visualization? You know, is it just a visualization? Is anything really happening? Or, you know, am, am I just making this all up? Okay. And, you know, I think something's happening here because what you're doing with these sadhanas, with the visualizations, with the request prayers, with the seven limb prayer, with all of these kinds of things, what you're doing is you're creating a relationship with the Buddha. And relationships exist in our mind. Even with regular people, relationships exist in our mind. Yeah, we usually think the relationship is out there somewhere. But don't relationships exist in your mind? Don't they depend on what you're thinking? Yeah? So we're creating a relationship with the Buddha through how we think and how we visualize uh, during, during these practices. So uh, we think, oh, I can only have relationships with people that I can see and touch and know. Well, in our digital age, we have disproven that, haven't we? Yeah? I mean, people fall in love over the internet. They've never even met each other. Yeah? You, they even form, you know, what is it, the, the, the stuff the hacking that the Russians were doing. You know, you form a relationship with a hacker. You don't know he's a hacker. You think he's a really nice guy who's saying something that sounds right, you know, and you start up this relationship with him. This is how ISIS recruited a lot of young people. Online, you start up a relationship. You pretend to be somebody else. And, you know, you start a relationship with somebody. 
Yeah. Now we think, oh, people are always pretending, you know, that that's we're different because they're pretending to be somebody else. But aren't we all pretending to be somebody all the time anyway? Yeah? When you really think about it, aren't we all pretending? Yeah. So, oh, yeah, she used to talk about this too, you know. That you're still pretending. So, you know, so, and especially, you know, even you know somebody face to face. Yeah, people pretend. Yeah. You're going out with somebody, so you pretend to be da-da-da-da-da, what you think they think you should be, and they pretend to be what they think you should, you, you think they should be, and everybody's pretending and nobody feels authentic, and then, you know, and then, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then you get married, and, <laughs> okay, so, you know, don't, don't our, we are, as Lama told us, you know, we're hallucinating all the time, yeah? When you fall in love with this fantastic, wonderful person who's really it, who's always going to be there and always understand you, and they're so cool, you are pretending. Because who is like that? Yeah? If somebody came to you and said, you know, I expect you to always understand me and always be there for me and always encourage me and always support me, what would you say? Sure, I'll find out. Or would you say, hey, get me out of here. You know, don't expect that from me. Okay. But when you're in love, yeah, sure, I'll do anything, almost. But I don't tell you the almost conditions right now because I'm not even aware of them because I'm so involved in my fantasy story of finally, you know, Prince Charming has arrived. <laughs> Yeah, or Princess Charming, or whoever it is, okay? So, better that we create a, quote, quote, imaginary relationship with the Buddha than we do with, you know, the object of our attachment or the object of our anger, yeah? Because the Buddha is our best friend, and the Buddha isn't going to, you know, betray us. And the Buddha does want the best for us. And the Buddha will be there anytime our, you know, obscured mind decides to stop chasing the eight worldly concerns and turn to the, the three jewels of refuge. Yeah. So why not create a relationship with a holy being like this? Yeah? Isn't that the meaning of taking refuge? And isn't the Buddha going to be your best friend? Yeah, so, yeah. 
you know, we fall in love. You're imagining all sorts of things that have never happened that you want to happen. When you imagine with the Buddha, you know, he's not FDR. He can, you know, give you something that FDR can't. <laughs> and that's Trump certainly can, <laughs> you know? Somebody was saying recently, oh, I think it was this guy, Lev, one of the guys who is, you know, now saying stuff, and he was saying, I once just idolized Trump. I thought he was so great. He was like the savior for me. Wow. Really? Yeah, can he save you? Yeah, can Obama save you? Can FDR save you? Can Putin save you? You know? That's why I don't like the word savior in prayers either. You know, I like the word protector. Now, the holy beings protect us. How do they protect us? By giving us teachings. And by hearing the teachings and putting them into practice, <clears throat> we become protected from suffering. So when I hear you, um, I was brought up in a Catholic religion. Mm -hmm. And you know, we prayed a lot to external figures. So in this requesting inspiration in the sadhana, I've been having problems with that. Mm -hmm. Because I relate to the way we did it. Virgin Mary, St. Joseph, you name it. So when I pray to the Buddha for inspiration, how could I differentiate that? Is it that in my upbringing, I was expecting for them to do me, the, to transform me, and in this case is equal? In the Buddhist, mm. is, is equal, is, am I seeing it correctly? I have to put my own share to transform my mind? Yeah. So I'm requesting for inspiration, but it's up to me to change. Yeah. Whereas in the Catholic religion, it was magic. Yeah. Is, am I seeing it right? Yeah. Okay. But also, you have to change. But also, the Buddha isn't an ordinary being. Okay? And the Buddha became, <clears throat> he worked so hard on the path to become a Buddha. Because as a Buddha, he could be best able to benefit sentient beings. So if the Buddha can't do anything to help us, then his whole practice for three countless great eons would be useless. So he definitely has some ability to help us. We don't always see it, we don't always understand it, we aren't always open to it, but sometimes we are open to it, and it's there if we're open to it. It's like the difference between when you do the sadhana and you're just re reading it, you know, 
I, I bow down to all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. I make offerings, those actually actual ones, and mentally transformed, I confess all my destructive actions, good accumulations, beginningless time. You know, you can recite it that way, or you can really think about it. Imagine the Buddha in front of you and really feel what you're saying. When you feel what you're saying, your mind changes. Yeah? And I think that's part of receiving the inspiration or receiving the blessing. A few comments, questions online. Mm -hmm. um, the first one is that in the second of the seven limb prayer, we visualize the offering and multiplying it to enable us to feel, um, to rejoice or to feel delighted on the action of offering. So would merit multiplying day be having the same effect? I don't quite understand the question. Can yeah. you explain it to me a little bit? Are they saying by doing the imagination, we're multiplying the value of the offering? He's linking it to rejoicing as well. So I think, I guessing that part of the question is like that the, the merit multiplying days we have, we rejoicing in, so then it does multiply. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. The rejoicing, definitely. If we rejoice on merit multiplying days, we can rejoice on any day, can't we? But maybe a merit multiplying day, we remember to rejoice. And another comment. Um, is that I feel especially for Vesak Day, it is a day where all Buddhists gather together to remember the virtues of the Buddha. And with the spirit and energy generated from the minds of many people on the same day, yes. it makes merit multiplying compared to a few people doing it on separate days. That's why group chanting and group prostrations give more energy and effect on our mind. Right. That explanation makes a lot of sense to me. You know, because that's really true. When you get a lot of people doing something virtuous, it doesn't matter merit multiplying day or not. Yeah, we're sharing in each other's merit. I think we we often concentrate better when there's other people around in the hall. Yeah, and... Uh, you know, and we think of them also doing the same thing that we're doing. So we get more enthusiastic, more energetic. And so definitely, I think, especially on Vesak, when so many people come together, you get that feeling, you know. And that has to do with, you know, what he said about this being a blessed place. It's because of what people do in a place. Yeah, it's not just, you know, Buddha... Bless, bless the place. It's like when you go into uh, some monasteries, yeah, or you go into, if you're on pilgrimage, you go sit under the Bodhi tree or you go in a cave of uh, one of the, the great meditators. Yeah? You feel something in that, in that place. And that's because of what the people have done there. The people are blessing the place through their practice. But, you know, how are you blessing the place? You're imagining the Buddha there. Okay? So if you're imagining the Buddha and saying, Buddha, please come here, 
then, you know, maybe the Buddha's going to pay attention to that place a little bit more. So what I'm getting at is I am just giving you ideas I have. This is one of the things that comes in the department of only Buddhas can explain it. Okay, like the subtle details of karma. I think this belongs in those that question list, okay? Yeah, but you can see we're coming up with some, some reasons about how it could work. That makes sense. Okay, let's see if I, I can finish this section. Okay, so uh, you've, the light purifies you, Buddha's on top of your head, you're saying the mantra. Okay, after reciting the mantra, do a glance meditation on the stages of the path by uh, path to awakening by reviewing the principal meditations in a brief, brief form. So this involves reciting a short Lamarin text, such as the foundation of all good qualities, parting from the four attachments, the three principal aspects of the path, the 37 practices of bodhisattvas, um, you know, any of those, uh, the, the Lama Chopa, you know, after the guru dissolves into you, that whole prayer. So any of the, these are all called glance meditations because they mention uh, the major topics on the path. And so by saying it, you're reminding yourself of these topics every day. You're planting the seeds in your mind uh, to gain the realizations of all those things. Then, with the Buddha on the crown of your head, begin the actual meditation session. With lower eyes, lowered eyes, turn your mind inward to reflect on the Lamrim topic you have chosen for that session. Make examples from your life in which these teachings apply and could help you. Okay, so the Buddha's on your head. So it's like the Buddha is looking over you while you're doing one of the checking meditations on the Lamrim. Okay, Buddha's on your head. He's looking over you. He's going, rah, rah, go for it. You know, you have your own individual cheerleading team. And, you know, and when you need it, this light and nectar is, is pouring down too. Okay. So that's where we'll pause for today. Any other questions? Yeah. You know, in the translation of the Heart Sutra that we chant, uh, we have Bhagavan as blessed one. <laughs> yeah. Right? And, and one time a guest asked me, who is he blessed by? <laughs> So, but I mean, I, I, you know, because of the Christian terminology. Yeah, I've always thought, because what that word really is, is Bhagawan. And I was thinking we should really say Bhagawan, you know. Also, and Bhagawan in Tibetan is Chomden Day, which is transformed, no, what is it? Transcendent endowed destroyer. Yeah, transcendent dis endowed destroyer, you know. 
which, you know, it, it, there's a whole, there's an etymology for that whole thing that, you know, I can explain it sometime. But, um, you know, and the idea was if you say those English words, then you could remember the, you know, the meaning and it gives you more term, more, more feeling for it. But hopefully, uh, you know, I, I mean, if we can also make Bhagawan uh, part of our English vocabulary, we've made Tathagata and Buddha and, huh? Dukkha and Sukha and, uh, you know, yeah, Bodhisattva and all sorts of things into English. So, yeah, so when we do a reprint, we can change it to Bhagawan. Yeah. I've got another question online. Um, when requesting to the lineage masters, what is the meaning behind your spiritual mentor being on your crown to act as an advocate for you? Why do we need an advocate? Again, I think it's, it's a, a psychological thing because we're closer to our spiritual mentors. We know them. It's like, you know, it's like if you want to get a job, if you have a friend who works in the company, <laughs> you know, and you ask your friend, you say, put in a good word for me with the boss. <laughs> so it's, I think, I mean, I'm making crude examples, but you, you get it, don't you? I mean, this is what we do all the time, isn't it? Yeah. So here, you know, first of all, I think what's helpful is you think that your spiritual mentor's there, you know, and your spiritual mentor cares about you enough to, you know, kind of petition the Buddha on your behalf. Yeah, it isn't like, you know, well, I come to, to teachings and then, you know, my teacher just forgets about me or doesn't know who I am. You know, no, they remember me and, you know, they want to help me make a connection with the Buddha. So they're, yeah, putting in that, good, they're petitioning, you know. Yeah. Don't you do this in your life? I know you do. Yeah. Yeah. When you have something that you don't want to say to somebody, you ask somebody else to prime that person first before you say it, yeah? Or when you have something, you know, yeah, like, yeah, what well, the, uh, the example I gave about you want the job. Yeah. So, yeah, we do this. <laughs> and it works, doesn't it? Yeah. But it's kind of nice thinking, isn't it? That, oh, my spiritual mentor is putting in a good word about me to the Buddha. And then, you know, the Buddha is going to come on top of my head. And, you know, and then this communication with the Buddha in the form of the light, the white light nectar and then the golden uh, light nectar. You know, that's how we talk to each other. Yeah, you don't need to talk to the Buddha by sending him a text. Yeah, <laughs> you just do that in your meditation and he responds with the, you know, the light and the nectar. So, you know, it's just different ways of doing things. <laughs>